Okay, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. And the title of this morning's message is The Gospel Magnet. The Gospel Magnet. And I've got a lengthy section to read this morning. We're going to read beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to read quickly, and then we'll pray. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. How many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles? And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this might come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with his officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you do with these men. For before these days, the Judas rose up and claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of the undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm just so affected by the the testimony that rings forth from this last line. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Lord, I pray that the result of this series, the result of even this message would be that this would be more said of us, that we are so stirred, that we are so inspired, we are so affected, we are so empowered that we are talking about Jesus, the Christ, within our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. J.B. Phillips once wrote that the reader of Acts is, quote, seeing Christianity, the real thing, in action for the first time in human history. And this real thing, this Christianity in its infancy, is already falling into a kind of surprising rhythm as we continue to march through the chapters of the book of Acts. It's a a rhythm where we are discovering that the message of the gospel has this interesting effect. It both repels and attracts. It attracts some, it repels others. It pulls some in, it pushes some away. And that rhythm is seen in the contrast actually between verse 13 and verse 14, where in verse 13 it says, none of the rest dare join them. In other words, it pushed them away. And in verse 14 then it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So in Acts chapter 5, we discover that the good news is not always good news, that the good news is not good news to everyone, because the gospel has a kind of magnetic effect upon the people. Now, now think back for a second to like third grade science when you were first learning about magnets, and you learned that the funny thing about magnets is that they not only attract, but they can flip them around and they, they repel. They not only draw in, but they can push away. It all depends upon how it's used and what it's used upon. And so in Acts chapter 5, we are discovering that the the gospel in like manner has this kind of magnetic effect upon people. It attracts some, it repels others. It gathers some, it scatters others. It unites some, it divides others. It's depending upon how it's used and who it's used upon. John Stott talks about this magnetism in his commentary on Acts where he says, quote, This paradoxical situation has often occurred since then. 
The presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. Now, that's not to imply or even state outrightly that people just find a place and they stay fixed there. Because Paul would be a great example of somebody who was a persecutor of the church. He was a brutal, bloody hate monger. And yet the gospel broke in upon him. He met Jesus one day on, his, on the road to Damascus. And he was transformed from someone who was repelled by the gospel to, attracted, to being attracted to Jesus. To ultimately representing the one thing he once sought to destroy. I was reading about... The theologian Augustine this past week, he, before he was converted, he lived as an unbeliever in what he called a, a, quote, hissing cauldron of lust. He had a concubine. He had an illegal child. And anytime anybody mentioned Jesus, he was utterly hostile to the very idea of a Savior. And yet one day he was in a garden, and he hears the voice of a small girl, but he looks around and there's... There's no girls. There's nobody in sight. And yet he hears this small girl say twice, take it and read it. Take it and read it. And he was so freaked out by that experience that he went running in the direction of, a, of, of somebody else that was in the garden. That, that other person happened to be a Christian who was reading a Bible. And he grabbed the Bible off of him and he flipped it open and it fell to Romans 13. Augustine read Romans 13. He was smitten by the Spirit of God and converted on the spot. His opposition melted into allegiance to Jesus Christ. The gospel which once pushed him away now drew him. He was once revolted, then he was attracted. He was once hostile, and then he was irresistibly drawn to the gospel. The gospel was a kind of magnet in his life as well. So Acts chapter 5 portrays these this magnetic effect in a very interesting way. And there are several different reactions that we can see in Acts chapter 5. And I I see no less than three of them there. And so I'm going to talk this morning about resistance, moderation, and devotion. Those are the three main points, the three main reactions to the gospel that emerge in Acts chapter 5. Resistance, moderation, and devotion. And let's begin with talking about resistance. So, we find the apostles, and extraordinary things are taking place at the hands of the apostles. I mean, this section opens up in verse 12 saying, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Look down at verse 16. The people were also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, we would think that if something like that was breaking out, if things like that were taking place, signs, wonders, and healings, that somehow that would unite the people in celebration. It would unite the people in jubilation because the suffering was being relieved and the families all over the place were rejoicing. But we are discovering that the work of God sometimes divides as much as it unites because in verse 17, we discovered that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public 
prison. So, so here we discover that there is resistance. There is opposition. There is hostility. And we discover that one source behind this resistance is jealousy. Jealousy is what happens when others experience what we want for ourselves. So the apostles are here experiencing the power of God, and as a result of the power of God, it is reported in Acts chapter 5 that they had the esteem of the people. That incident of Ananias and Sapphira that we learned about last week, that had taken place, that had made headlines, and signs and wonders were taking place. In verse 13, the second part of verse 13, it says, they were held in high esteem. And the Sanhedrin saw that, and they viewed that as a threat. They didn't like that. They wanted that kind of power. See, this was about prestige. This was about who the people followed. The apostles had it. The Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees resented it. And so they became jealous over it, and they resisted it. They knew they couldn't compete with them, so they jailed them. I was thinking when I read this about that passage in James chapter 3, verse 16, for, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there we will be disorder and every vile practice. I think a textbook definition of vile would be jailing someone who is relieving the suffering of other people through the power of God. I don't know that you can get more vile than that. But jealousy does that. Jealousy creates an internal struggle where people that are actually doing the work of God, we will persecute them, we will oppose them, we will afflict them. And we we will cause division as a result for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder. That's not only an internal disorder, but that's the effect of our lives on other people. So the Sadducees remind us, Acts chapter 5 reminds us that we must pay attention to jealousy. Pay attention to the pangs of envy that we are experiencing because those stabs of envy, you know what I'm talking about, where we feel like somebody is better at something or they're better looking or they get better grades or they're better off or they have kids that are better behaved than ours are or or whatever it might be. See, jealousy happens when we want it, but they get it. We want it, but they get it. And so we act on our jealousy and we oppose those that we tend to envy. And the irony of it is it actually puts us in a prison, a prison of disorder, a prison of vile practice. The irony of Acts chapter 5 is that the apostles are the ones behind bars, but it's really the Senate that is imprisoned. They're imprisoned by their jealousy, always thinking about the apostles, unable to get free of thinking about the apostles because of the following that they have. But the imprisonment and the opposition doesn't stop at the signs and wonders because God is at work. God is on the move. Aslan has gone mobile in Acts. And so the angel of God appears. The prison doors are opened. And he, the, the angel of God delivers this radical directive. Look at verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. Now, now think about what's being said here. I mean, they were in prison for preaching about Jesus. Now the angel opens the prison door only to say to them, yeah, go and do that again. 
In fact, not just do it, but it says do it at daybreak. The angel said do it at daybreak. See, daybreak would have been the equivalent of like rush hour. It would have been when everyone is entering the city. So the angel was basically saying, yeah, go preach Jesus again, but post it on Facebook, tweet it out, and make sure you, you record it so you can post it on YouTube as well. You know, get it out there. Go when everyone's going to see you and everyone is going to hear you. So that's taking place in the prison. Now, meanwhile, in a whole other part of the city, the council and the Senate are in session. So you got 71 men, members of the Sanhedrin, led by the high priest. And they, they, they send the guards to the prison to have the prisoners appear only to find out <laughs> that they can't find the prisoners because somehow the prisoners are now teaching in the courts. Do you get the irony of all this? are now teaching in the courts, repeating the very crime that delivered them to prison to begin with. And so the the Senate sends the cops to retrieve them, but to do it in a very careful way. I mean, look at verse 26. It says, And then the captain with his officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So it was kind of like, would you care to join the Senate for brunch today? Because they would like to have you come in. Pretty please, could you come along? So the apostles are brought into the Senate chambers. And if you, you've ever seen pictures, you know, there's, you know it's, there's, it's, it's circled by, by these cement seats that they sat on. And so just imagine the apostles walking in. The air thick with hostility. They despise these impudent, uneducated fishermen, these uneducated men. And they're murmuring among themselves as the apostles walk in, and the high priest raises his hand to silence the Senate, and he says to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. He won't even say the name not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, but you just listen to the heart of the charge here. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled our city with your message. You know, I've got to be honest with you, I, I stopped after I read that the first time, and I just, I just had to ponder because I was, I was smitten over how little that applied to me. I was, I was thinking, Lord, could this ever apply to me? I remember walking around my neighborhood this Easter as we were having our Easter service, and I was, I was putting invitations to the church in the mailboxes in my neighborhood. And uh, I remember just how, how, how sheepish I felt about that, how intimidating that seemed to me, how I, how I hoped I wouldn't bump in to any of my neighbors and have to describe exactly what I was doing. And it just reading this just reminded me of all that and it reminded me of how far I am from this charge that you have filled our city with your teaching. 
But actually, I pray that God gives me an Acts 2 experience so that I can have an Acts 5 experience. I pray that he would fill me with his spirit so that I could fill the city with the the teaching of the gospel. And that for all of us, pray for all of us that someday that charge might be laid upon this very church. You filled this teaching. You filled this city with the teaching of the gospel. Well, Peter's undaunted. I mean, his opening line, his opening line to the Senate is, hey, we must obey God rather than men. And then he launches into this message, which would probably be aptly titled, uh, you killed Jesus. That's the title of the message. It's got three points. You killed him. God exalted him. We are witnesses. And then, then verse 33 concludes, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. No one likes Peter's message. You know, after church that day, they were saying, so what do you think? He seemed a little too harsh to me. What do you think? What explains this? What explains this, this hostility, this affliction, this opposition, this, this resistance, this fervent resistance? See, it's because the gospel confronts us with something that we don't want to admit. And the, the, the Senate is being confronted with the reality of their accountability. It is confronting them with the reality of their sin. See, the gospel tells even the religious that their righteousness is like rags before God. The gospel tells the religious, the church-going folks, that they can't save themselves simply by going to church. It says, in fact, that we deserve judgment and that all of our attempts at moral improvement will not help us, not even a little bit. The gospel addresses both the high priest and the harlot with bad news and then good news. It addresses both the high priest and the harlot with the same message, that there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus. Jesus had something interesting to say in Matthew 11 about all this. He said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. If you're here this morning and the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ offend you, it may be because you're thinking more like a Sanhedrin than, than, than a sinner. And God may be using this story to get through to your heart because he loves you. But right now, it might be that the magnet's not turned in the right direction. It, it repels rather than draws. God only makes us aware of that because he wants to draw because he loves us. So resistance is the first response that we see. Secondly is moderation. Moderation. So so Peter wraps up his you killed Jesus sermon. And I just imagine like, like a hush settling over the Senate. The tension so thick you could cut it with a knife. And suddenly over in the corner this this Pharisee, this, this teacher of the law named Gamaliel stands up. Now, by the way, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he has a student at this point. That student's name is Saul. One day he'll be called Paul, and he'll write most of the New Testament. So he has this student, and he's a very respected man. And so Gamaliel stands, and he gathers himself together, 
And then he orders that the apostles be put outside for a spell because he wants to address the Senate without the apostles there. And he begins this this speech, and he's a very respected man, and so he has everybody's attention simply by standing. And he begins this speech. He says, you know, I've been around. I've seen some things. I've seen some leaders emerge, and I've seen them gain a following, and then I've seen them disperse with little impact on our way of life. And so in verse 38, he kind of summarizes his little sermon by saying, keep away from these men. He said, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, here's the question I want to wrestle with with you together this morning. Is Gamaliel's position a good one? Is this a man who should be applauded, or is this a man who should be scrutinized in a different way? Is this the voice of reason and wisdom and mature reflection, or is this the voice of ambivalent indecision? Now, let's just consider when this is being spoken. Let's consider the the setting. Remember, the setting is still in Jerusalem. In fact, we're not that far removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a Pharisee, and certainly as part of the Sanhedrin, he would have not only been apprised of these events, but he would have participated in some of the meetings where it was being discussed and potentially even meetings where Jesus was present. Gamaliel would have certainly also seen the lame beggar who earlier in Acts was healed because he sat outside of the temple each day and Gamaliel had to go into the temple each day. So he would have known about this miraculous healing that took place. And perhaps most important in considering how do we categorize Gamaliel is the reality that his words are a direct response to the blistering message that Peter just spoke, calling them to account for crucifying the Savior. Gamaliel is the voice of moderation. He's the person who looks at Jesus and says, you know what, not so fast, not so fast. Let's just wait and see where this whole thing goes. Let's not get overcommitted. Let's not get over-involved. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't have respectable virtues. He certainly does. I mean, he's obviously a patient man. And in fact, he's advocating to the Senate for patience as an approach with the apostles. He's not hostile. He's not antagonistic. Many of the Senate was. He's not. This is a man who is civil and respectful. He is open-minded. It says in verse 34 that he was held in honor among the people. So the person that we're encountering here in Acts chapter 5 in the person of Gamaliel is someone who is moral. He is upright. He is a God-fearing leader. But make no mistake, he is rejecting the gospel. He's just doing it in a very intelligent and polite manner. He's just doing it in a very civil manner. He, he, this guy is, is the churchgoer who believes in God and nods towards God, but God has no name for him. In other words, God is unnamed. God is not Jesus. 
God is just this unnamed deity. And so because God has no name, God makes no claim. And that's how he lives his life. See, the thing we have to learn as Christians is that denial can take many forms. It's not always like the Sanhedrin. Sometimes it's this moderate, respectable. Not all unbelief looks like the rabid, militant, foaming-at-the-mouth atheist. But make no mistake, a polite rejection of Jesus Christ is still a rejection. And when it comes to Jesus, ambivalence is not an option. I mean, Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now, Jesus is not advocating that we deny and despise family. That's not the point of that. He's just saying that the love of Jesus should be so far superior that other loves actually look like hate in contrast to that love. He's saying that's what a disciple really looks like. You're willing to make sacrifices. You're willing to pursue anything because you've seen a superior love. I was in Phoenix last week, and uh, I met a guy. I'll call him him Joseph. Um, Joseph was 21 years old. Uh, tall guy, came up at the end of a meeting and introduced himself. And in introducing himself, he, he told me he was divorced. And uh, I said, really? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, tell me your story. Well, Joseph goes on to relate to me that he was born and raised into a Mormon home. So he was raised at a Mormon, um, strict Mormon home, uh, graduated from high school, went and did the the two years of obligatory Mormon missionary work, came home and did what all respectable Mormon men did upon completing the missionary work. He he married, and life was good, and he was doing great. But then he he met someone who began to open up the word of God to him. And they began to press home the claims of of Jesus Christ. And he realized that that, that God had a name, and the name was Jesus. And he realized that in the life that he was living, he was actually straddling the, the, the world of Jesus and the world that he was living in. That there was a kind of moderation that he was living in that was no longer possible because of what he was learning and what he now knew. And so he gave his life to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And when his new bride found out that he had become a Christian, she immediately turned around and divorced him because he converted to Christianity. See, Joseph discovered a superior love. And and he was willing to pursue it at any cost. Moderation would not work for Joseph. Jesus didn't leave him that option. Gamaliel thinks he has that option. Jesus says, no, I'm sorry, you don't. See, intellectuals, religious people like Gamaliel are always trying to find the middle ground, the place where you can like Jesus but not obey Jesus, where you can be spiritual but not alienate anybody because of what you believe. You can be religious but still indecisive regarding what Jesus says And Jesus asks us to do. But we have to always remember that in Scripture, 
In Scripture, indecision is a form of unbelief. Indecision is a form. Indecision is just another way to say that the gospel magnet is repelling us. The gospel magnet is repelling us rather than attracting us. And you know what? I know that from experience because before I was converted, I was raised in a Presbyterian church, and my life motto was, sure, there's a God. But what does that have to do with me? I believed in God. I lived my life as if there was a God. Figured there was some kind of accountability that would work itself up in the end, work itself out in the end, and I'd hold up my righteousness, and somehow he'd let me in. And, but I thought, what does that have to do with me? But honestly, I found no peace or rest or answers for the most meaningful questions of life in my pursuit of moderation. Because my moderation was just a sophisticated form of ambivalence. It was just a sophisticated form of indecision. And, and, and if you can identify with that at all, the good news of the gospel is that God is greater than our unbelief. There's a story where, where the disciples prayed, Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. And that even the gift of faith is a gift from God that he can give to us if we call upon the name of the Lord. So God is greater than moderation. And he can give us what we need so that the gospel will attract rather than repel. Just call upon the name of the Lord. So there's hostility. There is a resistance, is what I called it. There's moderation. And then lastly, there is devotion. Devotion. So, the, the Sanhedrin decided to bring them back in and, and teach them a lesson. And so, in verse 40, it says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And by the way, the word beating here almost appears in passing. However, there are some commentators believe that this was, believe that this was the, the infamous, infamous 39 lashes, which really brought the, the victim of the beating within an inch of their life. And so they, they beat them, and they charged them, I mean, you've got to appreciate that. They, they charged them not to speak about Jesus. You've got to appreciate how organized the insanity is here. I mean, they've already been imprisoned for, for speaking, right? The angel of the Lord springs them and says, go speak some more. And so they return at daybreak, the, the, the most traffic time of the day, to speak some more. They're arrested. They come before the Sanhedrin. What do they do? They preach to the Sanhedrin, the message, you killed Jesus. And, and now they're telling them not to speak again. They might as well command them not to breathe or not to eat or not to pray or no happiness, you know, whatever, because it just wasn't going to happen. In fact, the fruit of their absurdity, the effect of their declaration, their command upon the apostles is seen in verse 42. Just look at this. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They did not cease. Such was the intensity of their devotion. Let me ask you a question this morning. 
Have you ever been in a place where the people around you were hostile toward you because of the gospel? I mean, let's, let's just acknowledge that for most of us, the answer to that is, is no. And, and I thank God that it is no for, the, for you and for us. At least I think I do. You know, I, it, it's been said that the believers in China pray for their Western counterparts, pray by asking God to bless us with a little persecution. Because they know that there's something about the nature of persecution itself, that persecution seems to surface devotions. Persecution inspires devotion because persecution makes moderation untenable. Persecution makes moderation impossible. When persecution comes, the believer must define herself. The believer must define himself. So, this was their response in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Think about that, diver- that devotion. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy. They were counted worthy of the honor of dishonor. Pfft. How does that work? The honor of dis- I think we need to give more thought to this, the honor of dishonor. Because I think part of the reason why reaching out to unbelievers, people that don't know Jesus, is so hard is because of the possibility of being misunderstood, which is another way to say dishonored. See, this doesn't come for us. Persecution doesn't come for us through lashings like it came for the apostles, but more the risk of being misunderstood, more the risk of being labeled, more the risk of just looking foolish in front of people that we work with or with we live with or our family members. So we want to invite somebody over to our house for a meal or we want to invite them to church or to fellowship group. We just don't want to appear a certain way before them. We don't want to appear too religious. We don't want to appear like we're, we're all Christian-y or we don't want to appear a certain way. And so we relate to our witness like somebody that wants to you know, keep it under a bushel or keep it down within. We relate to it, you know, like, like, like Bruce Banner relates to the Hulk. You know, the Hulk is in there. The Hulk is the green thing, gamma rays on Bruce Banner. The Hulk took place. So the, the Hulk is always in there, but Bruce Banner never wants the Hulk to come out because when the Hulk comes out, things get messy. When the Hulk comes out, there's always damage. When the Hulk comes out, he's always embarrassed or ashamed. We can do that with our witness sometimes. We, we just don't want it to come out. We want to remain a secret disciple. I mean, I think if we were honest, we would say that the, reali- the reality is, is that sometimes the main thing standing between our, the gospel that we carry and the people that don't know Jesus, or even the gospel that we carry and our one life, the invitation to church, whatever it might be, the main thing that stands between us is nothing more than our own reputation. We are rendered speechless in the fields of the Lord, rendered speechless among the harvest. Why? Because we just don't want to look 
stupid. I can, I can identify with that. I've felt this many times. It silenced me at times. We just don't want to risk offense. We just don't want to lose the esteem of people that we want their respect from. We lose sight of the honor of dishonor. Jesus said something interesting in, in Luke chapter 6. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Now listen, if, if there's any sense where this part of the message has a, has a fine point for you, there is really good news today. Because if you're feeling a stab of conviction over the silence that you have engaged in trying to keep the respect of those that you should love more than crave their respect, I want you to remember that this section of Scripture is describing none other than Peter, none other than the denier, none other than the one who threw the Lord under the bus at the very moment when he should have been confessing the name of Jesus. That's who we're talking about here. That's who stood up and said, we must obey God rather than men. He was the one who denied. He was the one who fled. He was the one who sacrificed Jesus for his own reputation, sacrificed Jesus for his own skin. But then he was converted. Then he was empowered. Then he experienced this encounter with the Spirit of God. And he was changed. He was transformed. And this was the result in verse 42. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. In other words, he was undaunted. He was unafraid. And as a result, because of the Spirit of God, because of the converting power of the Spirit of God, because of the the, the gospel power to be able to preach and share the Word of God, they were unafraid. Therefore, they were unstoppable. Therefore, the gospel was unconquered. May that be said of us as well. Let's pray.